If you have your Bible this morning, you can turn to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. As we are kicking off this morning, for the next six weeks, we're going to be doing a series entitled simply Values. What are the things that we as a church value? And what we're going to seek to do is apply the core values of New City Church to our daily lives using, of course, as always, the scripture to lead us in that. Now, just to be clear, as we think about values, values are essentially what is most passionate to us. Because as we can imagine, as we look at the world around us, and as we look at the scripture and all that God has called us to do, there are thousands of things that we could say, this is a valuable cause, this is an important thing. Um, There are a thousand different things that we could be about. But if we as a church are ultimately about everything, there's a very real sense in which we will be about nothing. So values, to put it another way, are the shared convictions. They are the commitments that guide our daily life in Christ, and in particular here as a church family. In other words, if we are okay with not doing them, then it's not really a value. It's just simply a word that we've put on our website. And so in order to refresh us this year in this desire, I want us to think specifically about what the Scripture calls us to do, to take action. And each week over the next six weeks, I will offer to you a very specific and a very practical application, meaning this is what I'm challenging you to do this week out of what we have seen in the Scripture as we reflect on who God has called New City to be. Now, I can only assume that all of you, if you've been here at least once, already have all six values memorized, right? In case you don't, just by way of quick review, our six values at New City Church are this, proclaiming grace, praying dependently, living sacrificially, growing community, renewing family, and multiplying disciples. And this morning, using 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, the scripture, is going to lead us to what does it mean for us to proclaim grace. And when I say proclaim grace, that is shorthand for our daily life, experiencing, living in the goodness of the freedom that we have in the good news of the gospel of grace. So let me read to us the scripture this morning before I pray. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read to us verses 3 through 11. Paul, at the end of Corinthians, writes this to the church at Corinth. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Let's take a moment, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through your Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of your Holy Spirit, that you have poured out your grace. 
And Father, we pray that by the power and the goodness and the freedom of your grace that you might not only allow us to live and experience that freedom today in a fresh way, but that, Lord, out of that overflowing well that is your goodness and life and love, Lord, that we might spill out and share with others that same good news of grace, that we might indeed proclaim it, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Three ways to live out our value this morning of proclaiming grace. My little girls didn't, weren't feeling it this morning, huh? Not feeling it this morning. They're going to hang out with mom and dad. Number one, make the gospel of first importance. Make the gospel of first importance. Once again, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The most prominent thing about us, the most prominent thing about our message, the most prominent thing that should be on our lips is the gospel. The Bible says clearly it is of first importance. So if we're going to live that out, it's probably worth answering a fairly critical question, which is, What is the gospel? It's a word that if you have not grown up in and around Christ and in and around the church, you may not be able to define it. And so when I was a teacher in Bible class in middle school, I would do this very exercise. I would ask the students, what is the gospel? What does the scripture say the gospel is? And I would take a whiteboard and I would write all kinds of words, concepts, phrases, important points all over that board and have them essentially circle the ones that really were the gospel. And so on that whiteboard, I would write things like baptism, end times, following the Ten Commandments, your view of predestination or free will, your church attendance, being a kind, a nice, a merciful person, biblical inerrancy. And I would ask them, which of these is the gospel? Now, As Olaf says in the amazing movie Frozen and Frozen 2, all good things, all good things. They're all good, valid topics, but none of them, in fact, are the gospel message. The gospel is of first importance. Sometimes we will try to explain uh, the gospel to people. We will try to explain our testimony, maybe, and many of us will lead with something along these lines. I was raised in a Christian home. Now, that is a wonderful and very valuable part of your story. It matters to us. It matters to Jesus even more. But that, as deeply moving and important as it is, is not in itself the gospel message. And sometimes we can get lost in our stuff and our story and miss out on making sure that we clearly clarify what is the gospel. Or we can very easily get wrapped up in some particular theological tidbit and topic and want to debate that back and forth. Or... As is the spirit of our age, we can think, well, as long as we are nice people, as long as we are friendly, as long as we do good works to other people, then that in itself is the gospel. A prominent senator in our nation this last week tweeted this exact statement, that Easter is in fact far more transcendent than the news of Jesus Christ rising from the dead, that the reality is that Easter is for Christians and non-Christians, and that the message of Easter is to do good things to people, and in so doing that you can save yourself. Sounds good in one sense. Yes, Easter is for Christians and non-Christians. Yes, we should do good things. But the message of the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ died to save us from our sins 
and on the third day that he rose again from the dead. It is astoundingly simple. It is not a complex thing, which is why the thief on the cross who was hanging next to Jesus, even in his pain and in his final moment of death, came to believe the very simple and profound and life-altering, life-saving message of the gospel. And the gospel is first and foremost at New City, ultimately because the scripture says so. That's what the Bible tells us. Because we have received it from Jesus himself. And by the way, all of Scripture, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the law, the prophets, the pastoral letters, all the way to Revelation, all of the Bible is ultimately the message of the good news that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners like me. And that we cannot do it ourselves. So the Bible says Christ died for our sins and was raised. Of all the scripture that I could share, this is the one that when I'm talking with somebody, I'm explaining the gospel to them, I almost always will go to Romans 6.23. For the wages or pay, payment of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the entire gospel message summed up in one verse. And this message can so easily and profoundly be shared, and most often I do, on a napkin. Because the gospel really is that simple and it really is that profound. And the way that we will tend to share this, and I'm sure many of you have seen this before, I offer it to you both to speak the truth of the gospel to you and to equip you that you might have a way to be able to share the good news with someone. All of us sin. All of us do bad things. And our sin, even one sin, the Bible says, separates us completely and eternally from God. And there is no amount of good efforts or good works that we can somehow build a plank, build a bridge to get back to God. Our sin has separated us from God. There is a canyon that we cannot cross on our own. And so on one side, you can see clearly the wages, which is a fancy word for pay. You earn pay. Well, the pay for sin is death. All of us deserve it. But the free gift, the free gift of God It could only come from God. He sent himself to save us is eternal life, eternal death or eternal life. And God has made a way that Jesus might rescue us. It is only by the cross of Jesus Christ that we can move from death to life. That is the gospel message. By believing in Jesus, he has made a way to rescue you. By his death, he paid the debt that we could never pay ourselves. And by his resurrection, he has bought us the free gift of new life and eternal life. It's the question that the napkin begs is, do you want this? Can you live without this good news? And the Bible goes on to say, Paul says, Christ was raised on the third day. It says that he appeared to Peter, the 12 disciples, more than 500 believers at one time, to James, and lastly to Paul. Chuck Colson, who spent some time in prison for his role in the Watergate scandal, but around that same time became a Christian himself, founded Prison Fellowship. He wrote this about the resurrection. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. 
You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years. Absolutely impossible. That's a good word. If Jesus isn't alive, then he isn't God. And if he isn't alive and he isn't God, then he didn't pay for our sins and he didn't defeat sin, Satan, and death. And there is no new life. But as we celebrated last week at Easter, there is nothing more transcendent or more prominent than the fact that Easter is about Jesus rising from the dead and giving us eternal life. Amen? The tomb is empty, isn't it? It's still empty. After 2,000 years, the tomb is still empty. So it's worth asking the question, what is of first importance to you? What is of first importance to us as you think about your words, as you think about your social media posts, as you think about the conversations that you have with your family, with your spouse, with your kids, with your extended family, as you think about what you do with your free time and what you do with your finances, do they show clearly, and I bet that they do, what is of first importance? Is the most important thing discussions of money or education or politics or the praises of people or your personal opinion on things? Everybody's got an opinion. I don't know if you knew that or not, but everybody's got an opinion. And we are more and more comfortable than ever sharing our own opinion and not listening to anybody else's. But the Bible says that of first importance is the gospel. Does your expression of the gospel, though, does it get sidetracked? on secondary issues, by endless debates about dunking versus sprinkling or end times or, or your mask or the vaccine or whatever else it is that you want to discuss in contemporary politics, the gospel is of first importance. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have an opinion about those things. I'm saying the gospel is overall, is of first importance. Number two, proclaim your testimony of grace. Look at how Paul transitions. First, he tells us exactly what the gospel is in very clear, very simple words. Now he is going to live it out for us, and we can learn from his example. Verses 9 and 10, Paul says this about himself. I am the least of the apostles. The apostles are the disciples plus Paul, minus a guy named Judas, and we know what happened to Judas. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. A testimony, just so we're clear, another Christian word, a testimony is just your story. It's your experience ultimately not about you, but about Jesus. And when we are experiencing grace, we can proclaim it. I want to offer to you four little ways that a grace-filled life will demonstrate itself, the testimony of a grace-filled life. The first is grace-filled humility. Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. Grace-filled humility. Paul has every reason to claim that he is better. Every reason under the sun. He didn't betray Jesus. So there's other disciples that betrayed Jesus. He wrote more books of the Bible. If that was a scorecard, Paul wins. He went on more missions trips. If that was a scorecard, Paul wins. He converted more people. So again, he wins a scorecard. He has a way cooler conversion story. Jesus speaks down in a bright light and knocks him off of a donkey. He goes blind and he comes to receive Jesus, Lord and Savior. That is not my conversion story. He has got way the coolest conversion story ever, but he does not tell you I'm the best. Instead, look at what grace-filled humility begins to do in his life. If we just look at the words of Paul, 
He says in 1 Corinthians 15, which is written about 56 AD, I'm the least of the apostles. Okay, that's him and 12 other guys. Ephesians 3, 7, and 8, written in 60 AD, he says this, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Four years later, he's, he's recognized, I'm the least of any Christian, of any saint. 1 Timothy 1, 15, 62 AD, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of which I am the worst. He's not faking it. I'm the least of the 12. I'm the least of every single Christian. I'm the least of everybody in the entire world. He's not dogging himself and hates himself. This is not self-hatred. This is an amazement for God's grace to see that his sins were very real and God's grace to him was so incredibly profound. And what's happening is the more Paul leaves behind his legacy of legalism and religion and self-justification, the more he dies to his own self-reliance and his holier-than-thou attitude. The more he is filled with the freedom to admit, I am and I was a sinner, but now in Jesus I have been given a new joy and a new life. Grace-filled humility. Next, he has grace-filled honesty. Grace-filled honesty. And this takes it a little, a little further. He gets specific. He says, I persecuted the church. And we just watched the kids' video. Persecution is bullying. Yes, persecution is way more than bullying. Persecution for Paul was murdering people who believed in Jesus simply because they believed in Jesus. That is not a historical past. That is a reality in the present in many, many places around the world today. I persecuted the church. That's the ultimate hypocrisy, right? He murdered Christians while at the same time in his old life claiming to be holy, righteous, and a rule keeper. That in itself is why so many people, even today, reject Christianity. Because he denies his own sin and he exalted his own self-righteousness prior to coming to know Jesus truly. But grace, and this is what has changed Paul, allows you to be honest about sin because he set you free from that sin. Steve Brown wrote a book called Scandalous Freedom about 20 years ago. It is a profound book. I highly recommend it to you. In the introduction, he says this, the difference between real Christianity embracing grace versus a legalistic version. He says this, a lot of what we call freedom isn't real freedom at all. Furthermore, the similarity between real freedom and the freedom experienced by many Christians is the difference between the taxidermist and the veterinarian. While you do get your dog back, one collects dust while the other jumps, slobbers, and barks. Get the idea here? I love uh, The Office. There is an episode where Michael Scott is trying to build a commercial in order to advertise how great um, Dunder Mifflin is. And he says, uh, limitless paper in a paperless world. His advertisement to the world is limitless paper in a paperless world. Sometimes that is what we do in Christianity is we try to sell something that nobody wants or needs. There's already too much hypocrisy. We miss out on selling what the world really needs, which is grace, truth, honesty. Grace-filled humility, grace-filled honesty, grace-filled identity. He says this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He's not saying it in anger. He's saying it in thankfulness. I'm no longer a murderer. This is not my identity. I'm a follower of Jesus. That's my identity. Grace gives us what so many people are desperate for, a real, a permanent, new 
identity. I'm no longer defined by the mistakes that I've made. I'm defined by what Jesus has done for me. This is the vision of New City Church. This is what we want to see happen in our city. We say our vision is to see our city made new by the gospel because our desire is to see every single person in this city experience grace. And to that end, we proclaim it because here's what we know. If your identity is in Christ, then you're forgiven. If your identity is in Christ, then you are blessed. You are loved. You are reconciled. You are a son or a daughter of God. You're adopted into his forever family. You've been transformed. You are gifted. You are heard. You are rewarded. You are victorious when your identity is in Christ. Finally, there's grace-filled mission. Humility, honesty, identity, and grace-filled mission. Paul says, I worked harder but his grace was not in vain. In other words, by his grace, he has given me the strength to share with others his grace. God's the hero, not Paul. That's so relieving. It's not about me. It's not about me measuring up because I can't. God is the hero. That's why Paul says, not I, but the grace within me. I can't take the credit, he says. I don't want to take the credit. I don't have to take the credit. My identity is in what Christ has done for me by his grace. And by his grace, I can work hard to share the good news of the gospel of grace. That's why our mission statement at New City Church is to glorify God by being and making disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. At the very beginning of this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1, Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. When you receive the gospel, that's making new followers. He says, the gospel that you received and on which you have taken your stand, that's being a disciple of Jesus. Being a faithful disciple of Jesus means taking your stand on nothing more than what Jesus Christ has already done for you. That's what we want to be about. Because the gospel is for unbelievers and it's for believers. The resurrection is for unbelievers and for believers. The gospel is for evangelism and it's for discipleship. And you never outgrow your need for grace. There will not be a moment where you say, okay, I've memorized enough things, I've done enough good things, I'm, I'm over the whole gospel presentation thing. I'm moving past that. No, 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 no. Be filled to overflowing with the good news, the unending grace of Jesus. Proclaim your testimony of grace. Third and finally, share a word about grace. There's a distinction that I want to make here. Third and finally, share a word about grace. This is the very last little verse of what Paul says. Verse 11, whether then it was I or they, he's talking about himself or the other apostles, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Preach it, believe it. Now we hear the word preaching and you may think, oh, well, that's what the preacher does, not, not me. Or you may think in terms of, oh, don't be so preachy, man. Don't be so high and mighty. Don't be preaching down to me. It is interesting to note that the word in Greek that the New Testament's being written in, the word for preach and the word for proclaim are the same word. It means that everybody is called to share to declare, to live out, to experience the good news of the gospel. And when we think about proclaiming it, it has a different sort of 
feeling, and that's really what we're going for. That's what the gospel is going for. Because when we are filled with grace and we are humble and we are honest and we have a new identity and a new mission, we can deliver, says Paul, what we have received. I'm just passing along to you what God has given to me. I am simply one beggar who is telling another beggar where to find food. I want to give you a specific assignment. I'm give you an application for this week. And not just one that you take on. I want to hear. Let me know. How did this go? What was this like? Let's share some praise reports of what God can do and what he will do when I say share a word about grace. Share a word about grace. That is your challenge. This could be a story of grace from the scripture or, or from your life. This could be your personal testimony of God's grace in your life. This could be an explanation of grace, like we just saw Romans 6.23 on the napkin. This could be explaining to somebody what grace is. This could be over a meal, could be over coffee, could be in the driveway, could be on a Zoom call, could be over the telephone. But the point is, is that you're using words. You're talking with people who need to hear grace. Listen to what Colossians chapter 4 says. It's an important reminder. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, people who don't know the good news yet. Make the most of every opportunity. Do we view the conversations, the people that we have, not as an opportunity to exploit them, but an opportunity to bless them? Let your conversation be always full of legalism, politics, your opinions about things that nobody really knows. Let your conversation be always full of grace. Season with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let me give you a final example. This is how Jesus preached. This is how Jesus preached. Jesus shares a word about grace in a story. It's called the prodigal son. Most of us have heard it before, and it's in Luke chapter 15. And if you recall, the setting there is the Pharisees are absolutely disgusted because Jesus is talking with, sharing a word of grace with, tax collectors and sinners. And they go, no, 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 that's wrong. But his story is this, right? A father had two sons. The one son demanded his share of his father's inheritance and left home and squandered his inheritance in a gross, sinful lifestyle. And at first, like most sin, it was a whole lot of fun, but in the end, he finds himself penniless and sharing pig slop with the hogs because he is starving to death. When the son finally comes to his senses, says Jesus, he wandered home, hoping to simply get a job working for his dad as a hired servant. But the Bible says something striking. It says that the father saw him when he was very far off and that he ran towards him, which is something that Jewish dads did not do. And he embraced him and hugged him and kissed him, which is something that Jewish dads do not do. And it says that he threw a party for his son who was lost but who had come home. And then it turns to the third character in the story, the other son. And the other son was profoundly offended by what had just taken place because as he tells his dad, I have always worked hard. I have always been nice to people. I have always done good things and good works. Quote, I have always slaved away. This is not a story about the younger brother and his rebellion and sin, ultimately. It's not even a story about the self-righteous legalism and religiosity of the older brother. This is a story about the extravagant grace of the father. That's what it's about. I remember sharing this message of grace with a really tough guy at my dinner table 
And I remember watching that man go from tough to weeping as he considered the weight of his own sin and just got honest about it in his own heart. And as he considered how astounding and unbelievable to him it was, the idea of, of grace. He couldn't say a word. He just wept as he thought about this fact. The Bible says, preach it. And it says to all of us, believe it. We are all born rejecting grace. Nobody had to tell me how to be self-reliant. We are all secretly from the very beginning, self-righteous, self-justifying, works-based people. Grace is a radically foreign concept to all of us, in other words, from birth. My heart was born saying, I don't trust anyone. And if you want to see an example, hang out at my house and watch my kids, right? My kids, don't hold me. Don't slice my meat for me. Don't hold my hand when we cross the street. Don't unlock that door for me. Why? I can do it myself. If you work with kids, you know. If you work with adults, you know. That's where our heart naturally is. I don't, I don't, I don't need your help. What is that? It's pride. It's self-justifying pride. And I still, as a believer, can be tempted every day to interact with God, my Heavenly Father, that way, with my family, with my church, with all of you. I can be tempted to live that way. But God says the opposite. He says, you can't do it alone. He says, trust me. I will do it for you. You cannot do it yourself. You will not do it yourself. Accept the free gift of grace that I'm offering to you. Maybe as a kid, you memorize what grace stands for, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. The Father offers it. He'll never let you down. Some of you need a father like that, one who will never let you down. And by some of you, I mean all of you, all of us. It's my story. The average person in, in our world, they think what of Christianity? If they've never seen and experienced Jesus as he is expressed in the scriptures, they assume that Christianity is a bunch of rules to follow. And it's a bunch of self-righteous, holier-than-now Christians who think that they've kept all those laws. What a lie from Satan. It's not what the scripture says, and it's not what we ought to proclaim. Here's what we should proclaim. Yes, there are absolutely rules. They're God's rules. They matter. They're important. They're good. And we failed at all of them. But Jesus didn't. Jesus kept all of them. And he is willing for free to trade all of your rule breaking for all of his perfect righteousness. All you have to do is believe. Preach it. Believe it. Will you this week share a word about grace? Because this is what I know about heaven. It's big and there's room for more. Amen? Let's take a moment. Let's pray together to that good and loving Father.